You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer's political podcast. This week, I'm hosting Jordan Schrader, and here with me are Don Vaughn and Will Doran of the NNO. Um, and the main thing we want to talk about is, Don, your coverage of who's getting money from the NRA, from the gun lobby. Uh, you Tell us a little bit about how you came to write about this. Um, the session's winding down, gun bills haven't passed, and um, what made you write about this now? So every time, um, usually like in the wake of a mass shooting, people say, why don't we have stricter gun laws? And the common refrain is because of the gun lobby, and that usually means the National Rifle Association. So there were um, a weekend of two mass shootings um, outside North Carolina in August, and Democrats who had proposed two bills earlier in the session, one was an extreme risk protection order bill, and the other one kind of had a little bit of everything with um, stricter gun laws. They tried to get renewed attention for it, uh, saying that um, this is the right thing to do. Um, you know, the Republicans need to um, join the Democrats in at least talking about it or a version of it or something like that. Uh, so when uh, we also have this other project going on where we have these um, embedded forms at the end of some stories related to safety and other issues where you can submit um, questions and things that you want to help drive our reporting. So we did a short story about that, about um, gun laws and the gun lobby, and that's what came up the most, was people wanting to know if their state lawmakers are getting money from the gun lobby. And so I looked into a whole slew of campaign finance for reports and found that while the NRA gives millions and millions of dollars at the congressional level, and Senator Tillis and Burr get or some of the, um, the top, I think they're in the top five that benefit from NRA money, the state level is a lot lower and they'll give, you know, $500 to uh, John Hardister or $1,000 to John Bell and um, bigger money to Speaker Moore, um, $2,600 and, and uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger got the same. These are all Republicans. And so I looked, this includes the last election cycle in 2018. So. In 2020, everyone in the General Assembly is up for um, election, and if people are wondering if there's um, quote-unquote gun lobby money coming into their campaigns, probably again, but, but not a whole lot. So whether or not they're influenced by the money is probably up to who or which party you're talking to. Um, the Republicans don't say that. Berger uh, told me for the story that they say, Liberals push a false narrative that money from gun lobbyist groups is a main driving force, but they actually feel strongly about their right to bear arms, um, of course, is the Second Amendment. And so a lot of money these days goes uh, out independent of the candidates, but you looked at all the spending by the NRA and they really didn't have a whole lot beyond these donations to candidates, right? No, they did with McCrory. Um, you know, when, when he lost to Cooper, they spent a lot of money on phone calls and mailers and they made endorsements for like council of state races or just a couple. Um, but they actually don't have a lot of money reported and from them directly flowing into 
um, members of the General Assembly. Now, I did find that they gave money to Cooper a while ago when he was Attorney General. Uh, I think it was in 2004, and when he was in the State Senate in 1996. Um, and it was a little bit of money, and it, it was a, the NRA's, I think, national reputation was a little bit different 20 years ago than it is now. Um, so their rhetoric, I think, is, has changed a bit. Um, and so Marsha Morey, <clears throat> representative from Durham, who's also a former judge, said that there are cracks in their armor. She was the one, she was one of the sponsors of this red flag bill this session, and she said when she introduced it last session, um, she ended up getting a whole lot of harassing and threatening um, voicemails and emails, and she asked the General Assembly Police to look into it. Um, and who are those from? So they were mostly outside North Carolina. She said the the insulting ones were within North Carolina. The the worst ones were outside the state. And they put her picture on um, you know a pro um, gun rights website, and um, you know obviously with a pretty negative commentary about her. Um, but she said that it won't deter her. It won't deter Representative Pricey Harrison and Representative Christy Clark. And Christy Clark, who is new to the General Assembly. Uh, was a Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, um, um, I guess, volunteer uh, for before she ran. So, so other than these kind of um, uh, harassing phone calls, which I would assume are the, are the exception rather than yeah. the rule, um, how, how do um, gun rights supporters get their way because they seem to be getting their way in the in the session. If, if the NRA is not giving a ton of money, um, how is it that, that these bills get buried? Um, it's, I mean, it's what Berger said, what, that's what they, what they believe, whether or not you think the smaller checks make a difference. Of course, you know, state politicians who have aspirations to run for higher office know that there's a lot more money um, with donations at the um, federal level. And then also, you know, it's the party position, too. So it's not as much whether or not you think the gun lobby supports you financially, but it's what is your party's position, what is the caucus position, and, and going along with that. But um, Civitas, which is a conservative group here, did a poll, and people, actually the majority of people, and the same with a Gallup poll, um, want some stricter gun laws, but whether or not they think stricter gun laws are the answer to mass shootings is, um, is different. And, and the same thing with the Republicans this session. So um, Representative Morey thinks, you know, maybe people, there's a chance with the red flag laws and, and she had discussions with Republicans, but then that just kind of fizzled out. So um, I would be very surprised if anyone ever mentioned it again this session. And it probably won't go anywhere in next session either. Um, as long as the same people are in power. And so where does that leave us? I guess it's really a question for you and Will, because Will's written about this too, but what kind of gun laws does North Carolina have? Do they have pretty strict gun law? Do we have pretty strict gun laws here? Um, kind of where do we, where do we sit? No, we have, you know, pretty, uh, I don't want to say lax gun laws, but definitely not strict, especially compared to some other states. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, we have rules about private sales, especially with long guns, you know, rifles and shotguns that, you know, allow them to happen at gun shows and things like that, or just between, you know, family and friends without, uh, you know, massive amounts of background checks that other states don't have. Um, that's part of the, you know, some loopholes that some of the more liberal politicians in the state kind of want to clean up and uh, make those sorts of sales harder. Um, we also heard uh, from Governor Cooper's office, what, maybe a month or two ago? 
um, he did an executive order basically ordering the SBI to look into how well we were actually complying with background checks uh, for the with the federal government you know whenever someone is trying to get a, a pistol permit uh, you know to buy a handgun uh, the feds run a background check on them obviously and turns out that uh, for whatever reason North Carolina had failed to uh, disclose it was like several hundred thousand criminal convictions um, that people had that you know might not have been felonies might have been misdemeanors and so that wouldn't necessarily have blocked them from getting this permit but um, and you know obviously we don't know how many of those people actually ended up going and getting guns um, but you know there were some pretty serious uh, you know just kind of mistakes internally you know not that there wasn't a law, you know, to catch those things. There was a law to catch those things, but for whatever reason, you know, the cops here just weren't sending those things on into the database. Um, so, you know, th there's some kind of, like, internal policy things like that that uh, Cooper, Cooper's office has been working on to kind of try and clean that up a little bit and strengthen strengthen that. Um, also, you know. when I asked um, Cooper's office for comment about the um, the old NRA donations, his, re his response, which was in the state, or statement from his, one of his spokespeople said that the governor believes in responsible gun ownership and that extreme positions like opposition of background checks are harmful to public safety. So um, that to me is that means that background checks are more his priority, I think, as far as what they can do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, any other uh, uh, notable gun laws out there that uh, um, that might change? Uh, is there any we really, anything that Republicans are, are willing to, to, to look at, do you think? Um, we haven't seen much. I mean, you know, obviously around probably 2013 when, uh, you know, Republicans had had power in the legislature for a couple of years and then Pat McCrory was governor, we saw a lot of laws passed kind of loosening uh, uh, gun laws here, you know, allowing them in more public places, restricting the ability of places to, uh, you know, private businesses to block guns, things like that. Um, but that, I mean, that all happened pretty fast a few years ago, and it's been pretty slow since then. I mean, they got, you know, the Republicans got pretty much everything they wanted. They were very successful in, you know, really making North Carolina a more gun-friendly state. And haven't really seen much in the last couple of years, and I would be surprised if we saw anything this year to strengthen gun laws, or especially next year in an election year. I mean, you're not going to... I would be shocked if we saw something in an election year to, to strengthen gun laws here, especially with a Republican-led legislature. There was one thing in House Bill 86, which was kind of like it had a few different things in it, that um, isn't as much or doesn't restrict your gun ownership at all, but it would um, require gun owners to carry firearm liability insurance, which is something that um, has been floated by other groups and might come as a surprise that you have to have liability insurance for a lot of other things, but not um, not for your guns. So that's something that I don't know how receptive Republicans are to it, but it doesn't um, impact anyone's ability to own a gun or not, unless whatever the policy cost is. Um, but of course, there's a whole bunch of other things as far as like how what it would cover. But there are accidental shootings um, all the time, um, often with um, kids with their um, with their parents' guns. So there are some gun uh, like gun community group or nonviolent community groups that um, push things like um, gun safety locks and that sort of thing. So and those are things that can be done in a general safety. Um, 
standpoint that doesn't restrict anybody's um, gun ownership. So maybe something like that could get um, bipartisan support down the road, but, but who knows. And there's, we've also, some of our colleagues at, at the News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer have also written about how some of the, uh, the laws that uh, deal with felons carrying guns are um, not necessarily even being used uh, completely now. Um, and that may be partly because of court underfunding and, and things like that. So um, you can read our, our series about that as well uh, as Finding Dawn's uh, project on guns at newsobserver.com. Um, so, Will, gerrymandering, as always, uh, we <laughs> I think we've talked about it every week. comes up on this, <laughs> and uh, what are the latest developments? We, um, it seems like the main one is we have yet another new lawsuit. So, uh, what is there possibly left to sue over? Right, so we are... Uh, basically in a waiting game for two different lawsuits. Uh, we've got this brand new one over the congressional lines, uh, which might be a little bit confusing uh, because the congressional lines were basically saved by the U.S. Supreme Court earlier this summer. Now, um, confusing? Gerrymandering? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so in 2018, if people will remember, uh, a federal court struck down our congressional lines as unconstitutional. But then in this June, a few months ago, the Supreme Court overruled that lower court and said, no, 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 the federal courts don't have the authority to rule on specifically partisan gerrymandering, which is what that lawsuit had been about. Um, it was a 5-4 decision. It basically had the conservative justices on one side at, in the majority and the liberal justices on the other side in the minority. And they said, yes, the Supreme Court and federal courts can rule on racial gerrymandering, but when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, when you know, you're just you know, harming Democratic voters or Republican voters in general and not specifically targeting a specific racial group, then the courts basically have no way to step in at the federal level and say that that is wrong. However, uh, we just saw we had a basically a first of its kind ruling later this summer in, well, early September um, about partisan gerrymandering of the state legislative lines and with the, the courts basically saying that actually the North Carolina Constitution goes further than the federal constitution does to ensure fair elections. And that rule about fair elections in the state constitution, which doesn't exist in the U.S. Constitution, basically allows courts to overturn maps for being partisan gerrymanders. So as soon as that ruling came out for the state legislative lines, uh, the lawyers in that case, um, who are uh, funded by a, a Democratic uh, group led by former Attorney General Eric Holder, sued again over the congressional lines. They saw that, oh, wait, that argument worked for the state lines, so we should you know, go ahead and quickly file another lawsuit against the congressional lines. So even though the Supreme Court did uphold those congressional lines, under the federal constitutional challenge, there's now a new state constitutional challenge against them. And we are going to start having some hearings on that later this month. Um, what is it now? October, uh, it's basically mid to early October now. So about one to two weeks, I think October 24th is maybe the first hearing uh, that we're going to have. Uh, so it's on kind of an expedited schedule. Obviously, candidate filing for the 2020 election starts in December. So I would have a hard time seeing if this trial is going to be finished up by December. I mean, you know, these trials are very lengthy. 
lots of arguing back and forth, even before the trial even starts. And then the last trial we had over these state lines lasted for two weeks, and then it took you know a month to get the decision. So it's I, I would be pretty surprised if we see a decision in this in time for the candidate filing, which means either one, it's not going to affect the 2020 elections, or two, it's going to really affect the 2020 elections by <laughs> pushing them back, um, at least for Congress. You know, it wouldn't necessarily uh, delay the like the presidential race, the governor's race, things like that. Um, it might, who knows what the judges might eventually decide, um, but it could, you know, have the effect of basically pushing back our congressional elections, or. <clears throat> You know, the parties basically just agree that, oh, well, no, this is too late, so we'll just let the elections go on. So I think it's a little too early still to tell uh, what's going to happen there, but we are basically awaiting some some of the early salvos in that new legal battle in the next couple of weeks. And in the meantime, that state legislative uh, lawsuit that I mentioned uh, that finished up earlier, that was what brought legislators back to Raleigh in September to redraw new maps, which listeners will know about. Um, the legal arguments in that are basically all done. Uh, the, uh, the Democrats and Common Cause had challenged some of the maps that the legislature made to replace some of the unconstitutional maps. Legislature defended their work, said, no, we followed the court ruling and all that. So now the court basically has to decide if what the legislature handed them is acceptable or if they want to get an outside expert to step in and redraw the maps himself. Um, and the challengers have asked them to do that, at least with respect to the House maps. Although not the Senate maps, right? Correct. Uh, yeah, so the Democrats and Common Cause, who sued over these lines, um, were fine with all of the Senate maps. And you actually, you saw that during the process. Most of, even most of the Democrats in the Senate voted for the Senate maps. Not all of them, but it, it was a largely bipartisan agreement that the Senate maps were, you know, basically fine. Um, the House maps, though, were much more controversial, both during the drawing process, during the voting process, and the votes for those were entirely along party lines in both the House and the Senate. Um, and so, and basically we saw a lot of accusations that there had been partisanship in the drawing of that, which the court had specifically forbidden. Um, and I've, I've written at length about that. If you want to uh, go Google some of my past stories, you can get a lot of detail on that. You can keep listening to the old, <laughs> the old podcast, too. Cause <laughs> yeah, so go back and, uh, and uh, look up some old podcasts. Um, it's, I'm sure we're on a multi-month streak now of talking about gerrymandering every single yes. episode. So apologize, apologies to the people who, uh, who don't really care that's about what, gerrymandering. That's why you tune in. <laughs> But so that's where we are right now, uh, basically waiting for the state legislative maps to uh, for the judges to make their decision on whether or not what the legislature did as a remedy was acceptable. And then in the congressional maps, waiting on basically the initial legal filings and legal hearings in that as the two parties kind of jockey for position in in this you know legal fight and figure out, you know, if it's even going to, to happen or not. Okay. All right, and one more thing before we break for Headliner of the Week. Um, more fallout from Hurricane Dorian, um, this time in politics. So, Will, what's going on with uh, relief for Ocracoke Island? Right, so when Hurricane Dorian hit the state earlier this year, it didn't really do much damage to most of the state, unlike some past hurricanes have. But Ocracoke, out in the Outer Banks, was hit really hard and had a ton of damage. It was, you know, you couldn't really even get in for, for days. And 
we just found out earlier this week that uh, FEMA and the Trump administration have declined to give um, what's known as individual aid uh, to people on the island, basically, you know, disaster relief money. And immediately you saw this get politicized. You know, you saw Democrats blaming our state senators and President Trump for not doing as much as they could have to help out and get money. And you saw Republicans blaming Cooper for not fighting it. And, I mean, you know, people can, please correct me if I'm wrong, but really what I've been told by everyone who really follows this is that we just simply didn't meet the numbers that FEMA requires. There's basically a formula for damage, and if you don't hit the numbers that the formula requires, you don't get the money. Um, so we've seen both sides try to basically make this a political issue and, you know, gin up their base on this. But the fact of the matter is it's basically just, you know, we didn't get enough damage for the federal government to step in, so the federal government's not allowed to step in. But what could still happen is the state could step in and help. And so uh, I was over the legislature earlier this week. I talked to Senator Bob Steinberg, whose district includes Ocracoke Island and uh, the rest of basically northeastern North Carolina. And he said that uh, basically with the, the budget impasse that we're at, it's kind of unclear immediately what the General Assembly can or can't do. But he said what he hopes happens first is that uh, Governor Cooper comes over to the legislature and basically just tells them that, look, we're trying to put politics aside and work with you guys. Let me know what I can do. Let me know what you can do. And they basically just sit down and try to have a sensible discussion about it. Um, he's he's one of the few politicians not trying to make this about politics, it seems, uh, uh, while everybody else is kind of slinging mud. Uh, he was basically calling for a little kumbaya session uh, to, to figure out you know, how the state can actually help. Um, so we'll see where it goes from here. Um, unclear really, you know, at this point what the state can or can't do, but we know the feds aren't stepping in. So, um, you know, it's possible that some people's private insurance could kick in, but it's also unlikely that a lot of those places have insurance just because of the realities of, you know, trying to get homeowners insurance for a beach house. All right, let's take a break and come back with headliner of the week. Stay with us. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? Back with headliner of the week, the most important or interesting person in this week's news. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner? I think it's got to be Tom Tillis. Um, we've seen really the past couple weeks as the impeachment hearings have ramped up in D.C. Um, obviously, a lot of questions for Republican senators. Um, and then, you know, we also saw more recently the very controversial decision that President Trump made in Syria to basically uh, pull our troops out of the way of protecting uh, the Kurds who we had been fighting alongside with uh, against ISIS there and basically allowed Turkey uh, to invade that area and essentially kill a lot of Kurds who are kind of have been in a long-standing unofficial war with Turkey. Um, a lot of Republican senators came out against this, uh, despite really usually being in lockstep with President Trump on a lot of things. Uh, you saw a lot of Republicans pretty strongly denounce this. Um, but Senator Tillis uh, took the president's side and said basically, well, you know, he's the commander-in-chief, that this is his decision, and you know, 
I'm, I'm going to stand with him on that. Um, we've also obviously seen him standing with the president on uh, the whole Ukraine issue. He's questioned the legitimacy of the whistleblower. He, he told me a couple weeks ago at Fort Bragg that there was nothing in the transcript of the call between President Trump and the Ukrainian president uh, that really gave him any pause. Uh, so he's clearly sticking with the president here. Um, he's obviously in a, in a potentially competitive Republican primary uh, here in North Carolina. There was just some polls that came out this week uh, that showed not great numbers for him. Um, obviously, I, th I think most people still expect him to win that primary. It'll just be a question of how much money he'll have to burn on that before heading into the 2020 election. Um, but uh, he's, you know, clearly, you know, sticking with the president on everything. And so they're, depending on, you know, how national politics go with this whole impeachment hearing, could end up swaying how his election goes in 2020. We'll just have to, to wait and see. Okay. Tom Tillis in the hat for headliner of the week. Don Vaughn, who's your headliner? Uh, Raleigh City Council. The municipal election was on Tuesday, and it's not quite over yet. Um, Raleigh, the way um, Raleigh elections work is if you can have a runoff if you don't get 50% of the vote, um, which is what happened in the mayoral race um, with a large field of candidates. So the top two are, it's Marianne Baldwin um, had the most votes, followed by Charles Francis, who has um, ran for mayor last time against McFarlane and lost in a runoff. Um, Marianne Baldwin is a former council member. So Francis has not said yet if he's going to ask for the runoff. We all think he is, but we don't know. Um, and then some of the incumbents made it through uh, and some didn't. And well, maybe they will, depending on if they want to call for a runoff too. And with that large, it's, um, you need at least 25%. So that is kind of hanging out there a little bit. But so there's some change. Some people want the same from um, Raleigh city leaders and some want something different. So it could be an indication of how uh, city politics, um, the preferences is changed. But again, um, local elections have unfortunately low turnout. Um, so it's still a small percentage of the population, but maybe more people will turn out um, for the runoff if they have it. And there's enough races that they'll probably have a runoff. So also, since Raleigh is the city of oaks, um, a well-known 120-year-old at least uh, willow oak tree on Nash Square downtown um, was old and diseased and got chopped down by the city. Um, and pieces of it were handed out to onlookers, which included me and some of my colleagues here. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it yet, um, but they sliced up little pieces of, uh, of the tree and uh, the Nash Square is still full of trees, um, but Nash Square and Moore Square are the last two, other than Union Square, where the capital is, um, of these, basically a city block park green space. Um, so my headliner of the week is our City of Oaks Council election. Not the tree. No, I just, that's just an interesting <laughs> aside. I thought you all should know. Yes. <laughs> yes. It meant a lot to everyone staying there. People were pretty serious about it, and you know, it was a very Raleigh moment. Uh, and uh, this probably means that this will be a more pro-development city council, um, a little more, a little less uh, skeptical of of growth. What do you what do you what do you make of the the results? Yeah, it's interesting. If you read um, Raleigh uh, City Government Report, Anna Anna Johnson's story, where she kind of pulls the candidates on these different questions and similar issues of been going on in Durham, the past couple of years and Durham just had its primary and all the incumbents made it through easily. 
Um, so I think maybe more um, pro-development in a way that where you kind of plan out the city where the um, previous or still current council is kind of anti, every they say it's more protecting neighborhoods, but it also means not allowing any sort of change. And sometimes that change means allowing people who don't have um, the same finances um, to live um, closer to the, um, the urban tier than, than everyone else. So it'll be interesting to see um, how things go and scooters are supposed to appear back on the street soon. And that was a big controversial issue on the council this past um, year. So that could, I don't know, it might affect um, our scooter. We talk about them yeah. like an endangered species. Like, yeah. oh, we've started seeing a couple scooters yes. in the wild again. <laughs> <laughs> so rally, I think rally, rally politics will be a bit more lively uh, the next few years, if, uh, if it's Baldwin or Francis, I think, for sure. Okay. All right. Uh, so we've got Tom Tillis and the Raleigh City Council. I'm going to go with Tom Tillis and Will's pick. <laughs> Uh, just because it really is setting it up an interesting 2020 where Tillis is, is all in for uh, the president. And um, depending on what happens with the impeachment inquiry and everything else, um, there, it has the potential to really nationalize that race. Meanwhile, we've our uh, colleague Colin Campbell wrote about um, some comments that were first reported in the National Review uh, involving uh, Jeff Jackson, who decided not to run in that race talking about how um, he, the, uh, the powers that be at the Democratic Party, Chuck Schumer, basically wanted him to do nothing but dial for dollars uh, all, all day long. He used the phrase windowless basement, standing in a windowless basement. Uh, and, I think and the quote was like, sit for phones. 16 hours yeah. a day in a windowless basement yes. raising money, yes. and, which I guess would explain why we haven't really seen any of Cal Cunningham in the race so far. <laughs> in a basement. In a basement. Um, and... I think a lot of candidates will probably be in uh, in basements or the equivalent of it, dialing for dollars in, in these very expensive races. I think North Carolina is, is probably going to see a flood of money uh, and um, possibly a, a nationalized Senate race. I so. think, wasn't the uh, the 2014 uh, Tillis-Hagan race, wasn't that at the time the most expensive Senate race ever or in state history or something? It was... Uh, Huge, huge amount of Very money expensive, and that's that. what, to, to bring it full circle, that's what made Tillis the, one of the top NRA money mm-hmm. recipients was that, that it was such an expensive race and everybody was I putting money into it. I remember a video clip of Dallas Woodhouse being like pretty excited about, um, about Tillis Excited winning. is one word. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for Domecast. For Will Doran and Don Vaughn, I'm Jordan Schrader. We'll catch you next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.